being there, doing the work that we're doing to to share with them, it's helping me more than it's helping them. So now I, I just have to keep doing this because I'm receiving a benefit out of this. Uh, spiritually speaking, you know, it's so gratifying. Urban Jungle brings stories from people around the globe that design and build a better world. I am Magda Flores and this is Urban Jungle. Welcome. Did you know that where we live and how we interact affects our well-being? Yet, when we talk about well-being, we tend to talk about me. Well-being is about we, the community and the environment we live in. It is time to shift the paradigm from me to we. Check out the Urban Wellbeing Training courses developed in partnership with the UK's Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management at www.siwem.org. This is a conversation with Jose Rodriguez. Jose is director of Cari Raramuri, a non-profit organization that supports the Tarahumara people from Chihuahua, Mexico. They prefer to be called Raramuris, light feet runners. Jose specializes in case management in California and also care for Native American communities. Today, we talk about the people that Jose helps in the Sierra in the north of Mexico. Hello, Jose. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. So that people visualize where you are, would you please describe what is it about the Sierra, the Copper Canyon, that you like the most and why? Well, first of all, it, it's out in the open between the mountains and the canyons. It is just breathtaking and it is so peaceful. So I just enjoy the, the outdoors there very, very much. Oh, this sounds amazing. So you can see the whole expanse in green and all the beautiful colors. Yes. Your background is in supporting people in their communities in California, in the U.S. So tell me a little bit about your career, please. Well, I've been uh, working as a social worker within the San Francisco Bay Area, different counties, uh, and most recently working specifically with the Native American here in California. I was working specifically in a county, uh, Santa Cruz County, working with Native American families directly, providing services, supportive services and cash grants, and just helping, helping them you know, to survive every day living here in California because it's very expensive. We are talking about the Raramuris and the people in the Sierra. So first of all, who are these groups? The Raramuri is the largest uh, Native American tribe in the state of Chihuahua. And I happen to be a descendant from the Raramuri as well, by way of my mother and her family. So I've always had a connection with this particular tribe. As a child growing up, we used to go to Chihuahua every Christmas, we, you know, holidays. That's how I became acquainted uh, more and more with the people, with the tribe. They would have uh, ceremonies, and the dancers are called matachines. I'd go there to see them, and as a child, they would just grab me from my arm and bring me into the dance. So um, that's how I became more familiarized, more acquainted, and it just started being a part of who I am. So you basically have Raramuri blood in you. I do, yes. So that's my initiation with the people. And as a child, I just remember 
here in California, because I grew up in California, my grandmother always, you know, reminding me, you know, somos, somos indios, somos indígenas, no se te olvide. So I've always carried that in my heart, you know, experiences that I've had, even as a child, some negative experiences, you know, they stay with you. They stay, they stay in your mind. You'll never forget. And thus, it's always been a, a point, a point of fact for me to stand up and make sure people know who I am. So you refer to negative experiences. Why negative experiences? Um, because in California, as in many parts of this continent and probably elsewhere, there's a, you know, a great extent of racism, discrimination. For example, I think I was in third grade elementary school, you know, like eight or nine years old. And uh, they were teaching us about California history. The, the history was taught in a way that telling students, telling children, you know, this land was wilderness. There was Indians here, but they were savages, you know. And uh, so the Catholic Church came to colonize them and to give them a, you know, give them a spirit because they were not considered human. They were considered subhuman. And, you know, hearing this as a child uh, was like, I couldn't understand that because my grandmother always told me we are Indian and I know that we are human and to be hearing something different, you know, I had to stand up to my teacher and discredit her, tell her that is not true. I am Indian and we are, we are human because my grandmother always told me that, you know, and I can never forget that. And I got, I got in trouble. I actually got suspended because I got into, you know, I'm a nine-year-old getting into an argument with my teacher an adult and I got sent home, you know, for like three days. And I remember it was not a very good experience because <laughs> my mother was a farm worker working out in the fields. They had to call her, get her out of work to come get me from school. So it was not, it was not a pretty experience for me. I can imagine. I can imagine. We are talking about spiritualism and all that is important to the Raramuri people. So would you please describe a little bit more about what are the values? What is important to the Raramuri? Well, dignity is always upfront, you know, and it's many times it is misunderstood by the rest of uh, the civilization uh, that Native Americans do have dignity. It is thought that they are beggars on the streets, but it is not. They are not that way. When they are out looking for help, they call it korima. Korima is a term that is used amongst the Raramuri, which basically says, help me and I will help you. But it, it is, it is uh, expected that you help somebody, you're, you're helping them without any strings attached. It is just you're helping them because you are the same people. You help each other because up, up in the Sierra, the communities do not live next to each other like houses here in cities. Sometimes they live far apart. So to go visit a, a, a relative or someone in your community <laughs> takes a while to get to them. So, you know, everybody lives independent. Like I said, Korima is, is a term that to me stands for dignity. And we try to live our ways, our lives in the same way with dignity. And I always carry that term with me, Korima. So I always have to explain it to people. So that people know, Mexico is actually in the American continent. Sometimes there's this confusion that America is only the United States? Yes, we hear that. We hear that very often. 
Anglo-Saxons, most white people, that's what they believe, you know, because that's what they heard or that's what they learned without realizing that uh, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. You know, there wasn't borders before. So all of the continent, North, Central, and South America was all one people, all indigenous people. And even today, currently, you know, um, I read a statistic that said well over 60% of the population under the age of 18 in the country of Mexico is, is of native blood. It's just a fact. Uh, unfortunately, um, yeah, everybody doesn't understand that. So it's like you're, you're always trying to re-educate people to the reality. You know, as I said, with my negative experience as a child, it's something that you don't forget and it's something that you're always putting in front of you to have people acknowledge like, um, you know, what you read in a book isn't always true. You know, and, and many tribes, it's through oral history that we know many of our history, uh, our, our descendancy and the facts of uh, how we, you know, choose to live our lives based on spirituality. Yes, particularly when we're thinking that we have some 64 different languages across Mexico. So trying to understand a little bit more about the Raramuri people is just absolutely awesome. Particularly when we now begin to see them. And this has been through huge amount of running. So you were saying that there's a huge distance between them. So I assume this is how the running happened between one mountain and the next mountain and the mountain thereafter. Yes, correct. Um, the, the Taromara don't necessarily run. When they do run, it's for sports. For the most part, they're, you're walking and you're hiking, but since uh, the, the terrain in the Sierra is all uphill, downhill, you're constantly walking and you're talking about a high, a high elevation the elevation is well over 3,000 meters. So as a child, you grow up there, you're already in the elevation, high elevation. You're, everywhere you go is by foot, walking, hiking, walking, hiking. It's just a way of life. So when they do, uh, do running, it's usually for sporting events, one community challenging another community, and it's, uh, you know, it's like a family event. Copper Canyon and the Sierra, that side of the northwest of Mexico, it is actually bigger than the Grand Canyon in the U.S. Yes, it's nearly three times or four times the size of the Grand Canyon. Wow, it's absolutely amazing. So how did people move on to doing these uh, marathons? Because we've been hearing about these ultra marathons that are 50K plus and that people are the Radamuris at the moment are taking over the world in this. Yeah, these races started, I think one of the first ones I heard of was in the late 70s and it was in... Uh, in Colorado, United States, up in the Rocky Mountains. So there was this, uh, this one man that had already been traveling, discovering places in the Sierra Taromara. He saw that these were runners. They had read about them being runners. And he started bringing a group of runners from the Sierra to the United States, in particular to Colorado, to participate in this race. And the very first race that he took him to he brought a group of, I think, six runners, six Taromara runners, and it was 100-mile endurance race up in the Rocky Mountains. 100 miles, that's a lot. Wow. Over 200 kilometers. And so they participated in this run, and the winners, first place and second place, was a father and a son, Raramuri, you know, wearing guaraches, a rubber-soled uh, sandal. That's when the world took notice 
of like, oh my gosh, who are these, who are these people? They came here, they've never seen them run, they've never participated in any of these international events, and they just showed up in this. The winner, by the way, he was 55 years old. He beat all the runners, you know, that participated in this race. And his son was like 35. He got second place. That was one of the biggest acknowledgments of the world that they were introduced to the Taromara Raramuri runners. And from that point forward, you know, there's been an explosion of these races, these ultra marathons. But I know that as far back as in the 1920s, some Taromara runners were brought to the United States. And I believe it was uh, to Kansas State University in Kansas. There was an international run. A group of Taromaras were invited and they came and they ran. They won those races too. Thinking about the huaraches, I mean, huaraches is basically slicing the tires of a car and using that as a, as a sole. And then uh, just putting leather, leather stripes to be able to attach them to the foot. And that's that. So not the most ergonomic shoe at all. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly what they wear. Even in the early 2000s, I was a part of a group that we would be um, sponsoring Taromara runners, Raramuri runners from the, from the Sierra Taromara, bringing them here into California. One of the first groups that I brought over, we participated in, in a run called the Angeles Crest 100-mile endurance race. And that's in uh, the San Bernardino Mountains in California. And again, it was a high altitude, like 10,000 feet, you know, well over 3,000 meters. And it was a 100-mile endurance race. And um, we brought two brothers, and the winner was one of the brothers. You know, he, he, holds, he held the record of running 100 miles up in the mountains wearing the Huarache sandal. How very amazing. And now we have another family, which is the Ramirez family. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, I met the Ramirez family in 2016. I was part of an, another organization called the Peace and Dignity Journeys. It's an intercontinental run. A group of runners start up in Alaska and another group start in Tierra del Fuego, Argentina. And they run towards each other to meet each other. And it's like a six, seven month run. So during that run in 2016, I was with the runners of North America. And when we crossed from Texas into Mexico, we met, the, uh, there was about a dozen Ramuri runners, including the Ramirez family, the father, his two daughters, and uh, his oldest son. And they all ran with us. So that's when I got to meet the Ramirez family. That was in 2016. And, and they ran the entire state of Chihuahua which is the largest state in Mexico, you know, comparable to Texas in the United States. So that was an incredible uh, experience running through the entire state. You know, when we ended at uh, the waterfalls of uh, Basasiachi up in the Sierra Mountains, then the Yaqui runners met us and then they continued the run. So, um, yeah, I've been, I've been in touch with uh, Ramirez family. I saw them earlier this year, like I think it was in January, they came to California for another race up in Sacramento, California. And so we went up to meet them and spent the day with them. How very fantastic, because now the person that we hear most of is Lorena, who runs in her traditional skirt. And I think it was Nike who was trying to sponsor. And at some point earlier in her career, she was saying, well, do you want to sponsor me when I run in Huaraches? I run faster than those people that are wearing trainers. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And there's even, you know, she's even have a, a Netflix, there's a documentary on her. 
is that the Lorena light-footed woman, right? Yes, correct. Oh, how how absolutely fantastic. So when the Raramuri people run, I don't think they run for gold or silver. What are they running for? Most of the runs that happen, these competitions, even in Mexico, um, yeah, most of them are not for money. Sometimes it's like a trophy, a belt buckle, um, but uh, a good number of them are also for food, particularly corn and beans. Like there's a run in, um, in Chihuahua, in Urique, and the winner gets, I think it's like 4,000 pounds of corn and 2,000 pounds of beans. And what has happened in these races, when other winners from other countries win, you know, they're not taking, they're not taking their prizes back to their country. They always end up giving it back to the people, the Taromara Raramuri people. So, yeah, most of these runs are based for food, you know, because a lot of times um, it's difficult. It's scarce out there. You know, the majority of the Taromara Raramuri, they live in areas where there's no electricity, no running water, nothing like that. They live off of the land. So if there's rain, they can grow crops. If there is no rain, it's very difficult to grow crops. So, for example, Lorena, times that she has won, you know, she's won all this food. A lot of her community, they'll come to visit her and ask her for Korima to share with them. So, effectively, they are really running for their lives. Yes. Yes, exactly. Absolutely amazing because, in a way, it's very positive that the Raramuris are helping each other and that people are beginning to support these communities, particularly when occasionally the Mexican government has uh, such a big population to support and not always the resources are available to do so. Correct. Correct, yes. I mean, myself as a child, like I said, um, we would go to Chihuahua once a year at least. And every time we went back, we would always take back um, things to give including clothing and including money and buying food. So I grew up doing that, you know, as a child throughout my life. And it wasn't until I was an adult, I heard of this other group of teachers that were doing this, these trips to Chihuahua. And they would fundraise here in California throughout the year. And then they would go into the Copper Canyon. They would buy, again, food, corn, and beans and distribute it within the communities, uh, the Raramuri communities. So that's how I got involved initially doing this type of work. I did it for maybe about eight, nine years with them. This group was called uh, Apoyo Tarahumara. And then I, I decided uh, that I wanted to do more, more than just fundraise and take food. I mean, food is definitely a necessity. But I also realized, you know, the population of the Raramuri was well over 100,000. And the food that we took, we took maybe sometimes 15 tons of grain. And when we divide it up amongst people that come see us, it turned out to be maybe, you know, like five pounds or 10 pounds of food per family for the number of people until we ran out of food. And we only gave food to as many people as we could. And we know there's many, many more that we did not have enough food for. You know, I decided uh, that I wanted to do more than that. That's how I met Teresa Todos los Santos. We'd go into the, the town of Kril up in the Sierra. She remembered me going there every year. You know, I was part of this other group. 
And one day that we were up in the mountains, she, she came up and uh, befriended me, asked me what I was doing. I, I told her, you know, we were going to purchase some food. We were going to go deliver it. And she invited me. She wanted uh, to invite me to do a presentation for me. And I was interested. I was there with my wife. And we said, okay, sure. I didn't know what to expect. And they had this whole PowerPoint presentation for us. My jaw dropped. I was very much impressed of uh, the activities that they do. And so at the end of the presentation, what she told me was, you know, we want to continue doing all of these different activities that we, that we do. However, we have need for funds. And so that's how we got involved. You know, she told us that they ran a school, a Raramuri run school, which gets no benefits, no funding from the government because they run the school in their traditions, not the way the Mexican government requires. For example, they require that you must have your hair cut short, you must wear a uniform, and you learn the first language is Spanish. And the Raramuri did not, did not want to follow that. They want to teach them the first language, which is Raramuri, then emerged into Spanish. So they could not get any funds. So they were basically, you know, uh, being funded by anybody that would uh, donate to them. So our first experience with her was we donated, uh, I think it was like two tons of beans, two tons of corn, because she also told us, you know, many of these children live far away. So they couldn't go home at the end of the day and come back in the morning every single day because it took hours to get to the school. So they would be sleeping there at the school, you know, with the teachers. So the teachers had to provide, you know, sustenance, alimentos. So our first uh, engagement interaction with, um, with Teresa was we provided food for the children. And that became the beginning of our relationship, helping fund them. Now we try to help fund them year around. I uh, participate here in the San Francisco Bay Area in different community events like powwows. Powwows are, or in Spanish they call them tianguis, gatherings of Native Americans here. There's many different tribes. And so many tribes, uh, they sell crafts from their own people. So that's what I do. I set up a booth. I purchase crafts from the Taromara at a fair cost from them. And I sell them here at the Native American events. And all the proceeds that we collect from our sales, 100% of it goes back to the Raramuri. Since we're a nonprofit organization, we decided to, to make it that if we're going to help, we're going to help 100%. So as I said, all the proceeds of all the sales, 100% of that money goes back into the Raramuri community with the organization that Teresa works with out there that's their nonprofit. Other nonprofits, you know, they all have an overhead. They have salaries, et cetera. All the overhead is paid for by way of their funds. We don't. We pay all of all costs. We pay out of our own pockets. So before I ask you how we could actually support the group, can I ask uh, three things that you have learned in your journey so far? The first thing I have learned was I am not helping them. They are helping me. That's the very first thing I learned. Because initially, I was uh, thinking, my people need help. Okay, let's fundraise. 
and we're going to go over there and help them. And as I mentioned earlier, I realized what we're helping them with is really a drop in the bucket. It's very little. We give a family comes up, we give them a bag of food. You know, that bag of food is not going to last them a year or a month, maybe a week. And that's it. So I, I came to the realization, I'm not really helping them, but they are helping me because I'm, I'm getting to a place spiritually that being there, doing the work that we're doing to cohabitate with them, to share with them, it's helping me more than it's helping them. So that's the first thing I learned. So now I, I just have to keep doing this because I'm receiving a benefit out of this. Uh, spiritually speaking, you know, it's so gratifying. And of course, you're making lifelong friends. You see families that you've met and, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years plus. So you see them growing up and now, you know, many of them are adults and married and so on and so forth. The second thing I've learned is about the corruption that exists in Mexico. And in this case was in Chihuahua. You know, many times we've gone up there during a time of the year when it's uh, before elections are coming up. And as soon as we arrive, uh, we get bombarded by all the politicians, all the Mexican politicians that find out the work that we're doing and they want to be affiliated, associated with us. They want to take a benefit that they are doing this for the Taromara. They want to get the credit that they are tagging along with us, holding arms uh, hand in hand with us as if they are the ones bringing this help to the people. So that's the second thing that I've learned to what level that uh, politicians and this element uh, will rise to. And the third thing I could say that I've learned is uh, the humbleness of the people. The Taromara, Taramori people are humble people. They appreciate us. They invite us to stay in their home. They may not have anything. They may only have tortillas and water, but they will offer it to us. So to me, that is the most I can expect from, from somebody that, um, you know, is, is my people. They acknowledge me. They offer me what they have. So uh, the humbleness of the people. Those are the three biggest things I think that I've learned. Huge learning experience. And most of it is for you, which is a very interesting point. And can I ask, what's next for Jose Rodriguez and Cari Raramuri? Well, since uh, a couple of years of COVID, it's been very, very difficult to do anything. Public events were shut down for two years. As I said, my, my main funding has been setting up at, at these uh, powwows, tianguis, selling selling the goods of the Taromara, Raramuri, the things that they make, like shawls, hand drums, beadwork, chakira work, sashes. Here in the United States, here in California, other tribes are just in awe of the products that I bring because they, they look at the things that I bring and they know this is authentic. It's handmade, authentic. You know, baskets made from pine needles is authentic. Every time I set up a booth, everybody comes up and they want to buy our stuff because they, they know it's genuine. It's the real deal. For example, at the end of this month, I have a, my first powwow of this year, of 2022. It's, uh, it's over on the Santa Inez Reservation in California, near, near Santa Barbara, California. The Chumash Indians is the name of the, the, the people. I've been invited there for almost 20 years. 
to participate there because there's many tribes from all over the United States. And I am one of the few tribes that's there that's from Mexico. So they're very happy to have me there. Looking forward, um, I just want to reestablish my relationship with uh, Tere and uh, Dararamuri because I haven't gone, I haven't not been over there in two years. I'm hoping that Christmas time this year, I'll be able to make a trip over there and reestablish and purchase more handmade crafts to bring them back and to continue uh, to sell. That's uh, on one level. Another level is I'm, I'm hoping to bring Teresa Todos Los Santos to California to do some presentations. I have brought Taromara ultra marathon runners in the past, but I think it was 2003 when 9-11 happened. It became very difficult to bring Taromaras into the U.S., get the permission from Mexico and in the U.S., because these races, I would tell them what I was doing. I could purchase their entry into the race easily. But after that, around that time period, you know, that's when the ultra marathon started uh, becoming so popular, where in a race they would uh, allow 300 runners, they were getting 2,000 applications to only admit 300. So before that, they would easily give me permission. I would buy the tickets in. So we had guarantees that our runners were going to be in the race. But now due to so much competition, they could no longer do that. And now what they do is like a lottery. You know, they take they take the 2,000 names and they pick the first 300. Y si les toca, les toca. No, no. So then Mexico got tight with us and said, well, we can't allow them to go if you're not guaranteeing anything. You guys yourselves may exploit them. Oh, no, no, we're, we're Taromara ourselves, you know, but, but they got tight. And so therefore we could no longer bring them. So that kind of ended up bringing the, the runners. We did although bring Teresa Todos Los Santos once, one other time, about nine years ago to California. Since the 9-11, the Mexican government has not allowed the runners to come into the United States. So that's, that was kind of the end of that for us. If we wanted to support you, support the work that you are doing with the education and the shop, how can we get hold of you? You can reach out to me at our website, which is www.kariraramuri.org, all one word. And my email contact information is on my website, along with photographs and some of the items that are for purchase. This is Urban Jungle with your host, Magda Flores. Thanks for joining, and if there is a topic or people you would like to hear from, all you have to do is drop me a line. My email address is urbanwsolutions at gmail.com. Urban environments need your help. Be part of the solution. Check out our training courses on urban well-being. Developed in partnership with SIWEM, the UK's Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management.